question is, what's qualification? And this president has indicated that to him, qualification includes the philosophy uh, of the life's philosophy, if you will, uh, of, of the candidate, who the candidate is, as indicated, you know, what the background is, that you look at everything about that individual to decide qualifications. You're, you're not just looking at, at, quote, professional qualifications. Where has the person taught? What cases has the person handled? You look at the person as a whole. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to the program today. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And Bob, here's a first. Today's show is sponsored by Clio, Huron Consulting Group, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. Well, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And uh, I write a couple of blogs, uh, Legal Blog Watch for Law.com and my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. And uh, Craig, uh, as everyone knows, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently underwent surgery for early stage pancreatic cancer. Uh, it, uh, this, this news, of course, poses a challenge not only for her personally, but for the, the court uh, and, and for the Obama administration. Well, Justice Ginsburg was appointed by former President Clinton to the Supreme Court back in 1993. She serves as uh, the only woman on the Supreme Court and is considered a reliable liberal vote. We're going to take a look today at reaction from peers and look at the possibility of her retirement and potentially filling a vacancy. So to talk more about this today, we have two guests joining us. Uh, First today is attorney Patricia A. Millette from the law firm of Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, uh, and a contributor to SCOTUS blog. Attorney Millette co-heads Aiken Gump's Supreme Court practice and herself has argued 26 cases uh, before the Supreme Court, more than any other woman in private practice. Ms. Millette's uh, many areas of emphasis include federalism and congressional power, religion, civil rights, access to information, the Fourth Amendment, national security and immigration law. For 11 years, uh, up through 2007, Ms. Millette served as an assistant to the Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Welcome, uh, Attorney Patricia Millette. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, our next guest, Bob, is Cruz Reynoso. He is recognized for his leadership in civil rights, immigration and refugee policy, government reform, education, and legal services for the indigent. In 1982, uh, Mr. Reynoso became the first Latino Associate Justice of the California Supreme Court. President Carter appointed him to serve on the Select Commission on Immigration and Refugee Policy, and President Clinton again appointed him to, this time, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And in 2000, President Clinton awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the United States' highest civilian honor. Mr. Reynoso joined the faculty at UC Davis Law School in 2001, and most recently he was appointed to President Obama's Justice and Civil Rights Agency Review Team. Welcome to the show, Mr. Reynoso. 
Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Patricia Millet, let's start with you. And, and uh, I want to ask uh, about the news uh, regarding Judge Ginsburg's, uh, Justice Ginsburg's health. Uh, you know, obviously she, they, they were able to detect this uh, at a fairly early stage uh, for, the, for this kind of cancer. And uh, she has said that she plans to be on the court for a, a long time to come. But but how does this reverberate uh, around the court in the court bar? What is, what is the impact of this kind of news uh, on the court? Well, I think, I mean, on the court, it's obviously they're, they're both um, aware of the sort of larger political implications of anything like this. But this is also, you know, it's a small community there. Um, you have you know, eight other co- colleagues and then the staff of the court. And I think it's obviously, um, these things are personal um, Surprises and personally upsetting to people isn't you know they're just concerned about a colleague and Justice Ginsburg. Well, you know she's there. There are um, jurisprudential differences among the justices is, is well beloved by all of them, and so I'm sure on that front that it was um, unsettling to everybody. Um, but you know, in the larger legal community, of course, it is it is a prompt for more focused analysis of of, of you know what what will happen. Uh, if and when a retirement comes. There's already had been, of course, speculation um, all through the election that there were going to be replacements, uh, retirements at some point during the Obama administration. News like this just obviously crystallizes everybody's concerns and provides, you know, a, a momentum to the analysis and the debate within the town. And so I think that's its most direct effect. It really brought the issue up to the fore, which had otherwise sort of taken a back burner to the obvious pressing issues of the economy, which are really topic number one in Washington, D.C. right now. Mr. Reno, so how uh, there's been some similar illnesses in the past. Uh, Justice Rehnquist and, and some other judges have gone through this. What is a historical perspective on how this is generally viewed and, and what what are people concerned about and looking forward to? Well, you know, we, we have to keep uh, some of those uh, incidents uh, in, in mind. I remember that Justice Marshall used to say, "I was appointed for life, and I plan to, <laughs> I plan to serve out that term." And yet, when he when he got sick, and I'm sure felt that he couldn't do all of the work, uh, he retired while he while he still had several years to live. Uh, so uh, I think it depends a lot on what what evolves um, medically in terms of whether Justice Bader uh, stays on or. Or, or retires, but it, it's true that um, this uh, opens the discussion on what's going to happen. Um, the uh, predictions have been that it's the more, uh, quote, liberal, end quote, justice, judges, and I put it in quotes because uh, I'm, I never quite know what liberal and conservative means in a Supreme Court sense, because very often those justices were considered uh, conservative seem to have been uh, more prone to changing uh, uh, the law, and so one might say, well, are they really uh, conservative or, or, or liberal in that sense? Uh, but uh, at least politically, the justices who have been mentioned that might be retiring are, have been viewed uh, as, as more liberal. Uh, if that's true, then it really depends on the nature of the judge appointed by the president. Presumably, the judge would be, like the president, more politically liberal, but I must say that for me personally, I've always admired Justice Brennan and folk of that sort who were willing to uh, uh, interpret the Constitution as I thought it should be interpreted, that is, to protect the people of this uh, country. And so I would hope that if we have openings, the, the uh, 
uh, precedent will indeed uh, appoint folk of that sort. Well, what what's the mechanism now within the Obama administration? I mean, I I would assume that even before he was inaugurated, he was looking ahead to the possibility of of uh, uh, filling a vacancy on the court. Does does this news uh, cause uh, any change in the way the Obama administration would be looking at this at this at the potential for a vacancy and at what it might be doing about it right now? And, and Patricia, let me ask you that question. Oh, and to be to be clear, I don't have any sort of inside information from the Obama administration. No, I understand, this, but, but just from your perspective, I do think it obviously um, requires them to uh, divert some resources to studying this sooner rather than later. Obviously, they've been spending their energies for um, the last um, almost month now, last few weeks, on trying to get um, cabinet members confirmed. And the Solicitor General um, just had her hearing this week as well. So they're trying to get everybody in place. Um, you know, for the, for the vacancies that are there right now in the government, and obviously that has been the focus of their vetting energies. And I think something like this, obviously, you know, is going to cause them to um, have to start thinking seriously about how you're going, what they're going to do with, if a vacancy comes open. Because you keep in mind, even if Justice Ginsburg um, uh, is able to do as she wishes, and I, I certainly wish her the best and hope that she is able to um, be back at the bench and has a quick recovery from this. Um, but if, uh, um, even if she does, um, there, there are other justices who are presumably going to retire at some point during the Obama administration, and this may change their calculations. They may think if Justice Ginsburg is staying, they had better go sooner rather than later so that you don't end a year or two down the line uh, having a couple of justices leaving at the same time. I think they all have the recent history of what happened with Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice O'Connor when um, someone was, was ill, but so they were going to stay on, and so another justice announced retirement, and then suddenly due to um, Chief Justice Rehnquist's um, death, you had two vacancies on the court, and there really is a desire within the court and amongst the justices not to have, if they can help it, two vacancies at the same time. So there's always some chance that you know, Justice Ginsburg, who is, is, is quite a hearty soul despite her um, sort of petite physical appearance, um, even if she's back and, and raring to go, some of the other justices may think to change their timing. And so I think that uh, the Obama administration is now, and now that it's sort of winding down its uh, confirmation process for its cabinet members, is really going to dig in and get itself ready, because you want to be ready when a retirement is announced to react quickly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. That is, I've been impressed by this administration. As you know, I served on a portion of the um, transition team uh, dealing with justice and civil rights. And uh, I was interested at, at how long this administration had been working, actually, on issues pertaining to the transition. And I understand that all administrations do that to a certain extent, but uh, this this one was really quite in-depth. And so I, the sense I have is that Perhaps even before this incident came up, uh, they, the uh, administration already had assigned some folk to be thinking uh, about who might be appointed because it's so often been said that there, that there probably will be several appointments. But I think that uh, this news then puts a greater emphasis on their uh, efforts in that regard. So my sense would be that they have some very... Uh, some folk very high in the administration thinking about uh, who would be logical to uh, be a nominator of the Supreme Court. I do think the one thing that may have been, if, if the administration was thinking it was going to have 
a year, another term in the Supreme Court that no one was going to go this summer. And, and that, could, that could still very well be. Um, there is obviously some speculation that the Elena Kagan, who is right now going through confirmation process to be Solicitor General, um, that if she's been put into that spot um, with the thought that um, if all go, goes well on that front, she would be a likely um, Supreme Court nominee. But if you suddenly have to make a decision this summer, she obviously won't have the seasoning in Supreme Court litigation that Solicitor General's office would give her. She would be, it would be a very you know, immediate jump from one political appointment to a court nomination. And so at that level, to extent their plan, that, that was part of their plan. And again, we're just speculating here. Um, that may well be short-circuited a bit if something comes open this summer. Well, as long as, long as we're speculating, I mean, the, the common speculation seems to be that it's almost that, that uh, President Obama's first nominee is almost certain to be a woman. Uh, do you both agree with that? I think so. Yeah, it it would be very difficult now with the history we have to uh, allow the Supreme Court to go forward with no women at all. And I think even beyond that, and I, I certainly agree with that. And um, but I also think there was, you know, there was a lot of upset over um, the failure to um, to put a woman on to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And you know, it, as, as uh, Mr. Reynoso says, it would be. Um, extraordinary to have no women on the Supreme Court in this day and age, but even to only have one um, is, I think, a sorry statement about uh, the appointment process thus far, where it's, where it's gotten us in the last eight years. And so I think the pressure um, to have a Supreme Court that looks uh, in many ways, and gender is just one way, but in many ways is reflective of the public it serves will require um, that that a woman gets serious consideration, and, the, and there's no doubt that there are many, many uh, qualified women who, uh, entirely apart from gender, if no one even considers about their gender, would be uh, shortlisted for the Supreme Court in any event. So it, it makes that easy. Oh, absolutely. There's no question that we have many, many uh, women, uh, women judges, women lawyers who are qualified to be on the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of pressure on the president recently by the Latino community, and who knows? Maybe uh, he'll select a woman of color to be <laughs> to be on the bench. You just you just don't know uh, uh, how the administration w- will go, but obviously it it has the uh, pressure from all kinds of groups. Uh, uh, seeking to have somebody uh, that represent their interests beyond the beyond the Supreme Court, so it's not an enviable job for the the uh, the president. I, I still remember Governor Pat Brown of California, with whom I served for a while. He used to say, uh, "If you have ten ten candidates for the judiciary and you appoint one, uh, you end up with nine enemies and one ingrate." <laughs> the, the person that got appointed knew that that obviously that he or she should have been appointed. So it's a tough issue with the president. Historically, there's been a significant kind of uh, closed vest or keeping everything close to your vest um, process for the president to select uh, the Supreme Court justices. And President Obama seems to have opened a new era of transparency. How do you see the selection process for the seat going if uh, Justice Ginsburg retires or if another uh, justice elects to retire? Oh, I, I think that it's such a delicate um, decision-making process that I have a feeling that even though uh, the president has indeed promised an open government, that it won't be 
that open, <laughs> that is, that the consideration will be behind uh, closed doors and, and the final decision on, on who to make, uh, who to nominate, but will still be made uh, uh, behind closed doors. We're dealing, after all, with personnel matters, and those traditionally have not been uh, open to the, to the public. So uh, my sense is that uh, they will do the vetting, they will do all of that uh, uh, privately. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, have a leak or two about some of the folks who are being considered just to see what the reaction is. But the main work, I think, will be done privately. And and I think that you know that makes sense. Because, well, first of all, given what's happened in the last uh, couple of weeks, they're going to want to make sure you know all their ducks are in a row and everything is thoroughly vented before they get names out there. They don't want to you know all the taxes will be checked and and such matters. But um, I also think you know one needs to keep in mind that it, it's not you know anti open government to be confidential before you've identified who you want. It, you, you, of course, want to have input, and I, do, and I think there's every reason to think that they will be open to input and suggestions from a wide variety of voices, and that's openness that you should have. But when you're really just sort of examining people, interviewing them and vetting them, these are people's personal lives, and a lot of very, very personal information gets inquired into. And for people who are ever selected for anything, I think it's, 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 it's only fair to the process, and it makes for a healthier process if that can be done confidentially, while, again, keeping your mind very open to input from all, all manner of communities and voices on whom should be investigated. Uh, I, I agree with that. Uh, incidentally, my own, my own view goes even beyond that. I think that the system we had back, I think, uh, up until the 30s, uh, that the candidate, the nominee, did not appear before the Senate to be questioned by the senators, but others appeared for that nominee both those who were in favor and those who were against. It seems to me to have been a far more dignified uh, approach. Nowadays, the way the nominees get battered by <laughs> the questions of the, uh, of the Judiciary Committee members uh, forces them, I think, sometimes to uh, answer in such a general way that later it appears that they misled the public by the way they, they answered. And I think it's rather demeaning, frankly, of the nominees to appear before uh, the uh, Senate uh, committees and, uh, and be questioned the, the way they are. But I don't think things are going to change. I want to share that, my own perspective on that. Well, that's a very public part of the process, and, and you've alluded to some of the kind of, I don't want to say backroom part of the process, but some of the more private part of the process that's going on. What about the people who are whose names are being put out there? Do they, do they lobby at all? Do, do they advocate for themselves in some way? Is there sort of a, a, a behind-the-scenes uh, lobbying going on by some of these people to, uh, to uh, gain favor uh, with, with the president? Well, the individuals themselves don't do any lobbying, but certainly their friends and organizations that are in favor certainly will be talking to those who are closest to the president, including members of the cabinet, the senators, and so on, uh, who, who can get the ear of, of the president and urge upon the president the, the, the rightness, the correctness of their views of who would be the, the best uh, Supreme Court uh, justice. But uh, I personally have never heard of the... Uh, the folk who are mentioned themselves doing any uh, any lobbying uh, 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 directly would be through their friends and admirers. At least that's been my experience. Well, and, 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 and that makes sense because this is not sort of a little, you know, 
some little slot that one that has narrow impact that one just sort of gives out to somebody even if one's inclined to do that. <laughs> that These are that's right. you know, this is a national decision, and so you know no one would be ill positioned, and you'd actually look. I think you'd hurt yourself if you sort of said, "Oh, you know, I'm great, I'm great." Take me. You really the, the president needs to be hearing from you know national constituencies on what's important. What what do people think of this? If they're a judge, what is their past voting record? If they're uh, you know a lawyer in some other sense, what is their past uh, papers, positions they've taken? What does this tell us about um, how this person um, fits with the president's judicial philosophy and with uh, the you know, constitutional conception of this role? And that's just simply not an individual lobbying effort. It really is a, a macro judgment about history. And the president, when he's been asked, has been far more forthcoming, if you will, on his selection process. For example, he has uh, so often a president will say, I'm going to appoint the most qualified person in, in the world to be on the Supreme Court. Well, then the question is, what's qualification? And this president has indicated that to him, qualification includes the philosophy uh, of the life's philosophy, if you will, uh, of, of the candidate, who the candidate is, as indicated, you know, what the background is, that you look at everything about that individual to decide qualifications. You're, you're not just looking at, at, quote, professional qualifications. Where has the person taught? What cases has the person handled? You look at the person as a whole. And I think that's what presidents have actually done. But very often they articulate it differently than this president. This president has been quite frank in saying, I want to look at the entire person, including his or her philosophy. And I think, um, you know, you can't sort of just pick and say there's one person who has the resume and no one else does. That would be a silly thing to say. There's there's a large number of people who have, who are qualified in a paper sense of having the, uh, you know, criteria that one would want for a Supreme Court nominee. And I think part of uh, in deciding what the qualification is is not only looking at that individual's background, but take a step back, at least this is in my view, look at the court and say, what does it need? Um, what perspective does it need? This is a national court you know, for the United States as a whole, and it makes incredibly important um, legal rulings. It's the final voice on the Constitution in our um, society, in our governmental system. And so, you know, it's, it's of great value to have people on there who come from a variety of backgrounds and experiences, uh, both personally and professionally. One of Thurgood, you know, everyone talks about Thurgood Marshall as the first African American justice. He wasn't. It was. It was. Um, he was a great uh, person in, in in many respects. One of the things that's underestimated by the public is his value was not only that aspect, but also that you know he had been a trial lawyer and he had represented people whose lives were being threatened just for engaging in litigation. And he brought, when, when you have, like you do now, a Supreme Court that has people on it who, who don't have trial experience, who don't have criminal law backgrounds, um, it would be very important um, or to uh, have someone there who can bring that perspective when the court's deciding cases about how criminal trials are to be conducted or how hard it is for someone to bring a lawsuit if you're in a situation where you might feel threatened by an employer or the public or whatever. That was Justice Thurgood's, uh, Thurgood Marshall's uh, another contribution that, of his many contributions to the court, another one he made. Justice Ginsburg um, has a, you know, an extraordinary civil rights background of her own and uh, if, if at any point, and again, I wish her nothing but the best, but if at any point someone's replacing her, you want to think about you know the the civil rights experience that she brought 
to the table, and that really is a unique perspective. In fact, that's why she was the very um, loud and strong dissenter in the uh, Lily Ledbetter case in the Supreme Court, um, because she brought to the table her experience as a woman litigating gender discrimination cases, and her strong voice and expression of views on that, I think, was a big part of the momentum uh, for the Lily Ledbetter Act, the change, you know, change in the law. And if you didn't have someone who had um, not only her paper qualifications, but that background experience in her life, she wouldn't have been able to bring that to the table. So again, I hope I hope uh, President Obama will look for, you know, what what voice and experience needs to be brought to the court. Well, Patricia and Cruz, perhaps we can follow up on that in a moment. We have to take a brief break and uh, stay with us, and we will be back in just a moment to continue this discussion. Huron Consulting Group's legal consulting practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopClassActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At TopClassActions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise their settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network, you review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to TopClassActions.com slash attorney. That's TopClassActions.com slash attorney. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back our guests, Patricia Millette from the firm of Aiken Gump, and uh, of course the blog, SCOTUS blog, and uh, Cruz Reynoso. And uh, we were just talking a little bit about the role uh, of Justice Ginsburg on the court. Uh, and Cruz, I wondered if you uh, had some perspective on that uh, that you'd like to share with us. Oh, very, very much so. I remember when I was on the Supreme Court, a, an issue came up having to do with the need for interpreters in court. Uh, and none of my fellow judges had had that experience. I had represented many uh, individuals who uh, did not speak English, so I had a lot of experience. And 
fortunately, I was able to persuade the judges that there were certain constitutional requirements of due process that required uh, not just an interpreter for the court, but an interpreter for uh, for the individual. I had the experience of cross-examining folk, and my client, who didn't understand, kept asking me, what's he saying, what's he saying? And, and, and it was just difficult to do the job, and fortunately, the court agreed with my position, and we issued an opinion saying, yeah, there's that requirement for interpreters. So I think that the, that, that uh, diversity on, on the bench is one of the things that gives strength uh, to the Supreme Court, and I would hope that that, that the president, I'm sure he will, uh, uh, take that I- into account in deciding who to nominate. Well, are we, are the question that I'd like to follow up on is with respect to Justice Ginsburg, are we speculating a little too early? I mean, she has once before beaten uh, colon cancer. Uh, is this different because now she's got a more severe type of cancer, and, and you know, she's obviously a fighter? What What's your sense of whether she's going to stick out the term? Uh, well, uh, I... Uh... I had a wife who eventually died of cancer, but she lived for more than 10 years after it was first uh, 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 indicated that she had cancer. Uh, and it wasn't until she got a second piece of cancer that, that, that she died. So a person, nowadays, uh, we seem to be able medically to, to, to help folk uh, lead productive lives even after they have uh, cancer. So it may be that she'll lead, she'll lead yet a long life and, and be productive in the court. I think it's just that this has given us a reminder that we may have changes in, in the court and, and that the uh, president and his folk uh, need to be thinking about who they think would be uh, right for the court. And I, I agree. I think um, I, I do think to the extent people think you know, Justice Ginsburg is going to be sent packing right away, they don't. They underestimate her. I, too, had um, a brother who uh, way outlived what the doctor said on a cancer diagnosis, and I think you know, it's, it's impossible for uh, any doctor to predict the passion uh, and desire of someone to, to fight a battle with disease. And this was caught, you know, I'm no doctor. No one's got me here as a medical expert, but my understanding is <laughs> this was caught incredibly early. Um, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. And so I certainly hope and wish uh, Justice Ginsburg um, much longer tenure on the court. I think we're, we're talking here just because I don't think anyone thinks there's any chance that within the next few years, there's not going to be uh, at least one, if not more, uh, changes on the court, even if Justice Ginsburg is, you know, standing there partying with everybody else as they go out and, you know, hanging on, on, on her own. Um, there's going to be some changes, and so I think it's valuable dialogue to have. And I certainly, you know, my, my, my comments um, are not, should not in any way be understood as a suggestion that she will be anywhere other than in her usual seat for the rest of this term. And her contribution has really been a special one on the Supreme Court. So I assume that the president would want to appoint somebody who can, who can continue making that special contribution to the thinking of the court. Yeah. I, I mean, some, some a lot of names have been tossed around. We mentioned Elena Kagan, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Janet uh, Napolitano, uh, I think Diane Wood, Kim Wardlaw. Uh, any thought on, on who is the strongest among them or who might be the most likely? In terms, in terms of their selection, I'm not asking you to weight them as judges, yeah. but... Uh, uh, no, I, I confess that I've been asked that question before, and I, yeah, I really do not have an opinion right now on, on who uh, would, would have a, somewhat of an inside track with, with this administration. Well, I think all of those people have just incredibly impressive records, and they also have sort of some special things in their background that they could bring to the table, and, 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 and it's a variety of things for each one. Um, and so I think at some level it's going to come to 
again, first an assessment of uh, which amongst these incredibly qualified and accomplished people uh, President Obama thinks fills uh, the need. It may depend on who, whose departure it is that is being filled. Uh, what would be a good voice that needs to be filled um, in that in that seat if um, uh, if at some point it's you know Justice Ginsburg and he wants someone with a strong civil rights background, then there are some other names like uh, Pam Carlin out at Stanford, who's a well-known, very accomplished um, civil rights lawyer, um, who may well also be someone thought of. But I think it's also going to depend on, you know, part of this is uh, staffers and everybody vetting and clearing everybody. And then, you know, the people who survive that process end up in a room talking with the president. And then the president's going to find one of those people with whom... um, the the conversation is is most comfortable, and there seems to be a real uh, resonating and uh, a um, compatibility in judicial philosophy and approach. Um, and that's you know that's what uh, what will make the decision. With Justice O'Connor, all of her wonderful wonderful attributes was also that you know what she and President Reagan were able to talk about horseback riding. Um, and so at some level, there's got to be a personal comfort that the president develops with that with with them and that's why i think it's very hard for either of us to say who who went out uh in that ultimate um the ultimate interview of all interviews and and we have to keep in mind that uh in justice o'connor the president reached out to an appellate judge uh of a small of a small state so nobody i think at that time uh, had predicted that uh, she would be the one that would that would be uh, selected, and yet she was. So it's it's very difficult <laughs> uh, for for us to uh, second guess what the president will do. The president has a lot of options, and as both of us have said, there are really hundreds, maybe thousands of of lawyers out there that are really qualified and judges that are qualified to be at the Supreme Court. So it's not just about technical qualification. It's it's about philosophy. It's about who the president feels comfortable with. It's about the president's hope for the future in terms of the Supreme Court. And Justice O'Connor, again, again, obviously known as being the first woman on the court, was also, once she was there, was she brought to the table not only the voice of, of a woman uh, as an attorney and a lawyer and, and as a mother, but also... Um, as a state legislator, <laughs> she, well, she that, brought a right. unique view on the legislative process and the state court system to the table. So again, I really, I really hope uh, that the Obama administration will look for um, you know the, u- the uniqueness that um, an individual can bring and contribute to uh, the the constant dialogue uh, between the justices in decision making. An, an interesting uh, issue for me will be what the president would look at in terms of age. That is, will the president try to find somebody that's pretty young, or will uh, very often it takes time to have the person have the sort of reputation that uh, is thought to to be needed to be on the Supreme Court, and yet sometimes the presidents have been very uh, interested in having a young person, so the person will be on the Supreme Court for a long time. And I haven't heard much discussion about that, uh, I must say, but uh, but I'm looking. Uh, uh, with interest to see what this administ- how this administration looks at that issue. Well, we've reached about the end of our time here. We really appreciate your having been part of this. We'd like to give each of you an opportunity to kind of wrap up with your final thoughts, uh, if you care to offer any, and also to tell our listeners how they can uh, follow up with you if they'd like to do that. So, Patricia, let's start with you. 
Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here, and uh, thank you, Mr. Reynoso, for sharing your ideas, which I found very interesting and informative uh, in my own right, so I hope the listeners did as well. Um, I guess the one thing I want to say is that I do hope the listeners realize that this is a process I think they should be engaged in and should think seriously about. Um, it gets, you know, these Supreme Court nominations get a lot of sort of quick, short-term political coverage, um, and there's there's much to be improved on in the process. But, you know, the Constitution set up the Senate confirmation process uh, for a reason, and that is that is sort of the only democratic elected input that one has for people who are then appointed for life. And I, I hope that people will be actively engaged and engaged in dialogue with their politicians about what they think is important to have in a Supreme Court justice. Um, I just think it's important that we have public contribution um, and appreciation for the importance of this process. No, I I agree with all that, and thank all of you for I, th- I think a good good discussion. Uh, for, for for me, uh, I've met with a lot of uh, judges from other countries uh, where they have um, judges become judges very young, and it's considered like a career. I just met with some Chinese judges yesterday and explained to them that ours is quite different, where folk become judges after having a full uh, development of their of their careers uh, as as lawyers and professors and so on. And uh, I mentioned to them that the system has worked well in our country, but it's worked well because the the judiciary has been able to keep the respect and the support. Uh, of the people of this country, because after all, judges don't enforce their own rulings. It's the executive that that enforces it, and the executive, of course, is very responsive to the public wheel. So it's very much, a, a uh, in many ways, uh, though it seems closed, it's, it's very much an open process where the president, I'm sure, will be listening to the interest groups uh, and to individuals before making that decision. And, and it's been a process that has served this country well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I teach, incidentally, I'm emeritus at the University of California at Davis, so anybody who wants to send me an email or give a call can look me up there. And I'm at uh, Aiken Gump Law Firm in Washington, D.C., which is at www.akingump.com. And Patricia, did you ever cross paths with uh, Barack Obama at Harvard Law School? You were there around the same time, right? Uh, his wife was in my class. Ah, <laughs> he, was, okay. he was a couple years ahead of me. All right. So I crossed paths with uh, Michelle Obama, then Michelle Robinson. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. This is a really interesting discussion, and you've offered a lot of uh, very good insights into into the topic, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank, thank you. you. I enjoyed it. And, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. To all of our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on LegalTalkNetwork.com. And uh, we are, of course, in the uh, podcast library and iTunes as well. And uh, thanks for carrying the the boat uh, for a few weeks while I was away, Craig. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Glad to have you back, Bob, and we will see you then. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.